0: Please take this as your trigger warning. In this episode, I will be talking about mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide, self-harm, disordered eating, miscarriages, sexual assault, and death. Please proceed listening with caution. Disclaimer, this episode is just about my thoughts, feelings, and experiences and are no way meant to diagnose or treat anyone with mental illness. If you or a loved one are currently dealing with or suspect that you may have mental health issues, please seek help from a professional. For immediate concern, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or go to their website at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Or you can reach out to the crisis text line by texting HOME H O M E to seven four one seven four one. Standard messaging rates may apply. Hey y'all, welcome to A Regular Bitches Podcast, it's your girl Jessica, and I am just a regular bitch who loves to run her mouth. With that being said, let's go ahead and get into it. Hey, hi, hello everybody, it is episode six, hope everybody is doing well, um, finally getting cooler. So I'm truly enjoying the fall weather, Uh, drinking lots of tea, made a lot of soup. I love soup. I've told y'all that before. And I've been baking a little bit more. So, you know, my domestic goddess is now in full swing. (laughs) Um, You know, also planning holidays, Um, creating my Christmas list. You know, I want to try and get Christmas shopping done early this year. I also say that every year. And I also never do it, so here's hoping. Um, But also just planning out uh, my menus for Food Super Bowl and Christmas dinner. And um, Halloween, obviously, with COVID, trick-or-treating's probably not in one's best interest. Um, We never actually did door-to-door trick-or-treating anyways because not a lot of people really do it in our neighborhood, and I just don't feel like driving to a whole different neighborhood to walk around for a few hours. So um, we've done trunk or treats with our daughter. So if you don't know what a trunk or treat is, um, usually just members of your community, whether it's a church or a certain organization, like we did one that was like a bunch of like old vintage cars. And um, you literally just everybody parks opens up their trunk they usually decorate it deck it out with halloween decorations and have bowls of candy for the kids so instead of walking an entire neighborhood you walk a parking lot with a bunch of cars and again they're usually decorated um we like to go to the one that had the vintage cars because um it makes it more entertaining for my husband um but we usually do that but even still kind of want to obviously limit human contact limit my kid reaching her hand in a bowl full of candy that 35 other children have also stuck their sticky gross hands in. So um, I decided what we're going to do is I'm just going to buy a big bag of Halloween candy. I'm going to separate it into little like cellophane goodie bags with um, what I deem appropriate as a day's worth of candy for her. So it's already pre-portioned and um, we are just going to do like a scavenger hunt around the house. I'll hide them and different areas for her to find. And then we'll just do some other Halloween related activities. Maybe decorate some pumpkins, you know, make some little handmade like face mask out of construction paper and glitter and glue. Um, maybe even make some slime because she really likes doing that. So, you know, just do some make Halloween as fun as possible, being that we aren't going to be doing it the way she's used to but you know again COVID 19 gotta be sanitary um also wanted to let you guys know i had the honor of joining a lovely woman named victoria on her podcast for two episodes so definitely check it out it's the what the Fuck did i just hear podcast so wtf did i just hear podcast um it was a great time uh, i shared two embarrassing stories not going to tell you what the stories are. You will have to go check out her podcast to find out how I humiliated myself. (laughs) But yeah, so please check her out. I had a very great time recording with her. She's so much fun and her podcast is amazing. And um, she is a glorious Black woman. And you know, we love Black women over here we support, we stand. So please, please, please go check her out and also check her out. I will um, link her Facebook and Instagram page and her podcast in the description of this episode. So yeah, please check Victoria out. Victoria, I had a really great time. It was so much fun and thank you so much for having me. So yeah, um, given the content one at the beginning, y'all know we are going to be talking about mental health. This episode. This is an entire episode dedicated to mental health. Uh, I'm going to share, you know, my experiences with mental health and some of the things that I've been through, and just things like that. Conversation that I think needs to be had. So, we're just going to go ahead and jump straight into it. Um, the reason I wanted to do this is because talking about mental health is very important, and I, while I do feel like as a society, we are making strides in making the idea of mental health issues less taboo. Um, You know, it seems to become becoming a bigger, more important conversation. And I love that. But the main reason I wanted to talk about it again is because I think more people are going through it now than we are used to. Um, obviously mental health can affect people in many different ways. Some people have chronic chronic mental health issues. And um, but some people, even people who have, you know, who are quote unquote mentally healthy, um, can still experience mental health issues based on circumstances. And like right now, this pandemic has been affecting people's mental health for the people who have, you know, taken the personal responsibility to quarantine themselves, limit social interactions, limit just, you know, outside exposure in general, the the isolation can take a toll. So I think even for people who may have never really experienced any kind of mental health problems, maybe dealing with that now, dealing with levels of depression, with the isolation or even anxiety with the concern for their health and well-being or the health and well-being of their loved ones. So that's why I think it's something nice to, to just bring up again. you know. And again, I feel like you can never have too many conversations about this. So also, I mean, one in five adults suffer from a diagnosable mental illness in the United States. And there is one death by suicide every 12 minutes in the U.S. So again, you just, you, you can never have too much conversation about this because mental health can impact any and anyone, at any and everyone at, any given time whether it's you know chronic whether it's circumstantial and mental illness doesn't have a look you know and I don't just mean like physically I mean like when you look at the the picture of what you think someone's life is mental health mental health issues can still be a part of a story that you may think seems like the most incredible fairy tale Like how many times do you see when someone famous says, you know, they've been struggling with mental health, You'll without a doubt, you'll see in the comments, somebody say, oh yeah, your life must be so hard having millions and millions of dollars. Now don't get me wrong. I always say people who say money can't buy happiness are liars because it definitely can. It may not be that case for everyone, but it can be for a lot of people. But no, having money is not a guarantee that you will not deal with mental health struggles because money can't bring back a loved one if they die. Money can't just make clinical depression go away or postpartum depression. Money doesn't, you know, fix the trauma from sexual assault. Yes, money can give you therapy and that can help you cope, but it doesn't make these things go away, unfortunately. So, like I said, I want to kind of dive in and talk about a few of my experiences and some traumatic things that have happened in my life, and just in general, my experience with my mental health throughout the years. So, here we go. So, for me, I started noticing my struggles with mental health in my teen years. I can't say too much about my, like, small childhood, because I was just a little kid, and I think... If I did have any kind of mental health concerns, my parents would have noticed it more so than I would have at that age. But as far as like me, as far as my own self-awareness, my teen years were pretty hard. Um, I'm not gonna get too in depth because there's like a level of anonymity I wanna maintain with um, the people whom I interacted with my life during that time. Um, But nonetheless, so this will be kind of vague, but um I did deal with depression fairly hard through my um my later teen years. And it was I think a lot of it the adults in my life attributed to teen- teenage hormones, teenage angst, teenage rebellion like oh it's just, you know, teen problems. It's normal, it'll pass. Um I just implore Anyone, if you have a teenager in your life, whether it's your own child, a sibling, a niece, nephew, whatever, um, if they seem off, even if you do genuinely think it's just teen problems, doesn't mean they couldn't benefit for, from some help, for a shoulder to lean on, therapy, anything, you know? So try not to just brush that off. But uh, I was very suicidal for a good few years. Um, I legitimately thought about it often. At that point in my life, it was just like, not being here would be a lot better than waking up every morning. But I still managed to go on with my day-to-day life. Um, I would say in seventh grade uh, is when one of my Teachers noticed something wasn't right and was concerned. Uh, Mr. Meek, and I'll never forget him because it meant a lot that he noticed what was going on. And I always say teachers don't get paid enough, but he still went out of his way to check on me. Um, We used to have a weekly assignment um, where we like joined this like blog website and we had to make a blog and you had the option to make the blog public to the entire class or just for the teacher to be able to access and read and we were allowed to write about whatever we wanted and this was for history class which is weird but um we were allowed to write whatever we wanted and uh one of mine brought concern to him and he talked me he's like are you okay how are things at home and i just kind of broke down and told him that i wasn't okay and that i just i hated my life and i hated myself And so I didn't have a lot of friends at the time in seventh grade because I just went to I just started in a new school and um, I pretty much went from one side of town to the other. So I was definitely a fish out of water. And uh, so he implored me to come to his class every morning before school started. You know how like you hang out for a little bit before your classes start. And um, I would go in there. He's like, you can just come in here and sit in silence. You can come in here and talk to me. You can come in here and work on schoolwork for other classes. But if you want to just come in here to have a safe space, you can. And that did a lot for me. It did a lot for me. It, It definitely helped. It just felt nice to feel like somebody heard and somebody cared. Um, But unfortunately, mental illness left unchecked can progress into very scary ways. And I did make the first attempt on my life when I was 13. Um, I'm not going to get into the gruesome details because despite the content warning, I think that's just a lot to still talk about on this uh, type of a platform. But, yeah, obviously it didn't work. I'm still here. Um, One of my proudest failures, I guess you could say. But, yeah, it's heavy. I look back on it and I think of the person I was and how alone I felt and how I just genuinely believed that life wasn't worth living. As a young child, I just felt like it wasn't worth it. Um, and then in in eighth grade, I was sexually assaulted by one of my peers. Again, another thing I'm not gonna get into the gruesome details about, um, but I didn't have the biggest support system through that experience in my life. So it just made things worse. I felt dirty. I felt like a whore. Um, obviously rumors went around school that um, we just got, that we got caught having sex. Um, At the time, it upset me. If anything, I think for my own mental well-being, I'm more glad that people just assumed it was sex and not what it actually was Um, because kids can be ruthless. (laughs) And I'd rather you just think I was a whore for having sex at that age than to, you know, potentially victim blame me for what happened to me. So for them to be unaware of what actually took place and say the things that they say, I don't know, I guess in a twisted way, if I had to pick what fucked up situation I would be in, I'd rather be in that one. Took a toll. It wasn't until I got to, I mean, I did, we did do some therapy when I was a kid. not so much surrounded about those things as much as it was me transitioning to being in a blended family. Um, that is how I got my three wonderful siblings in my life, my bonus siblings, or whatever you want to call them. I call them my siblings, blood or not, they are my brothers and sister. Um, so yeah, the therapy was more focused around me being in a bl- blended family and adjusting to that than it really was about like, the other mental health struggles that i had going on um but it wasn't until high school that i was able to get a uh appropriate amount of therapy and diagnosis for what i was going through um it initially started with me seeing my guidance counselor miss foster another very important person in my life who um really helped me get through so i'm very thankful for her um and we we had a um a what clinic, um what I, I think it's a uh, Wilmington Health Access for Teens, uh, Wilmington being the city that I was going to school in, um, and it was just like a, a mini clinic that you know provided a myriad of services uh, between mental health services, physical health, sexual wellness, things like that. Like we we all knew it as a place where you can go and get free condoms. Um, it's also a place where I was able to get birth control through them. And like I said, I was also able to get um, a little bit of therapy. Um, after many talks with my counselor, she felt it was best for me to start seeing them. And I wasn't sure but they were also able to do things in a way where if your parents saw on their insurance, they wouldn't ask questions. And it was covered. So I didn't even have to pay anything. So my mom never found out until I had told her later on in life. Not that I had to hide it from her. I just chose to. But um, they were able to... Give me my diagnosis of having depression and uh, anxiety. Uh, My anxiety didn't manifest as much at that age, as much as like the more, I guess, depression-like symptoms. Uh, You know, sleeping a lot, not really having any interest, um, weird eating habits, whether that was binge eating or just like legitimately starving myself but they taught me some healthy ways to cope as a teenager. And it, it was helpful. It definitely was. Um, I wish I would have continued the treatment after high school, but I didn't. Um, <clears throat> honestly, I had stopped going around my junior year because I had finally like gained a group of friends and I had a boyfriend. And so, circumstantially on the surface, I was happy. Even though I still had these issues inside, my outward life was starting to get to a place that made me happy, so. But yeah, so, then we move on into adulthood. And the, Worst thing that ever could have happened in my life happened to me. So on May 1st, 2013, at the young age of 21, I lost my mom. And that to this day is still the hardest thing I've ever ever been through. And so like, forgive me if I get emotional. This is hard for me to talk about, but I think it's important to talk about. Um, I was 21. Um, and then my two siblings who shared this mother with me, um, my brother was 13 and my sister was six. Um, just a month before it happened, me and my husband got engaged and we were in the process of beginning to plan my wedding. Um, The weekend prior to my mother's passing, we had went to check out places for the reception. That was such a dark time. And the thing that was the hardest was at the hardest moment of my life, I was not able to actually experience it. I had two little siblings that I then became responsible for. So I had to be mom in a way. Now, my relationship with my youngest sister has always been more maternal than it has been a sibling relationship because we are 15 years apart. So it's just naturally been more maternal. But yeah, I pretty much became a parental figure and being 21, losing your mom, now having to take responsibility for taking care of two kids and also having to make all the executive decisions as far as my mother's arrangements all crashed on me in an instant and it was very hard. Um, We did do grief counseling, but I kind of centered my grief counseling more on how to be the best big sister to my little siblings now that our mom is gone. So I didn't even really focus on my grief. I focused on being the best that I could for them. I wanted them to get the grief counseling. And I was just worried about being able to take care of them. Um, And I forgot to mention this earlier, and this does um, have some relevance to it, but my mother was 42. And um, aside from being diabetic, was in good health. So it was a surprise. But I lost my best friend and most important person in my life. I mean, I I used to talk to my mom every day. Like I would literally, like honestly more than once a day. I'd usually call her once while she was at work and we'd be on the phone for like 30, 45 minutes, sometimes longer, while she was working. And then I would usually talk to her once in the evening. About nonsense, about nothing. Like I will never be close to someone like I was to my mom. Whew. Forgive me, I'm okay. But yeah, I mean, to the point where I would talk to her about what I bought at the grocery store. We'd talk about what we were making for dinner, what errands we had to run or chores around the house, what we were watching on TV. We're down to talking about how many times he took a shit in a day i mean and did talk to her about everything and i am thankful because i definitely had some rocky times with my mother um really when i had finished high school and um was first able to be an adult um, but i couldn't be more thankful that me and my mom were in a good place by that time and had the relationship that I think every girl low key dreams of having with her mom, you know, just be really, really close. But um, after losing her, I just kind of repressed my own grief and feelings because I had them two to worry about. Now, my sister was six, so she ended up going to live with her godmother because at twenty one, it was just too much for me to have to take care of a six year old. And I could not be more thankful that my mother's best friend um, honored my mom's wish and my mom's want and and she takes amazing care of my sister. And my sister is in such good hands. And obviously, I still see her like she's actually here at my house now she's in my room. But um, she is in such good hands. And I'm thankful for my mom's best friend every day. And uh, my brother saved me because he was, he was older and it was a bit easier. And it was just what worked out best, um, given the time. And so he's been with me since. And um, that, in and of itself, I think, has brought me comfort. Um, having him here with me. And um, without even having to say a word to each other somehow, getting through it together. And of course my amazing husband, um, which was, it was a hard loss for him too. But um, I mean, I had a good, I had a good support system um, because it was no question to anyone who knew me how much my mom meant to me. And like, it's been seven years and it's, hurt never goes away never goes away. But uh, to anyone out there who's lost a parent or a parent figure who meant a lot to you, um, I feel your pain. And it's very hard. And especially when you lose them in such an unexpected way, because of course, as a child, you it's for the most part, you know, you're most likely gonna outlive your parents. And and you know one day they, they'll be gone. Never expected it at 21. It's not like my mom had, you know, some kind of sickness that would've made sense for her to pass at that age. She was diabetic, but it was under control and she was taking good care of herself. Um, But because of that, from the loss of my mom, it brought a lot of resentment. Um, Like I said, May 1st was right before Mother's Day. So I had to then see all my friends on Facebook, spending time with their moms on Mother's Day. And and. You know, my friends who are mothers, having their mothers, you know, celebrate them on Mother's Day and and being able to do like the mommy daughter thing of like, which honestly the hardest Mother's Day was the first Mother's Day after I had my daughter because um I feel like that first Mother's Day is the Mother's Day that every person's mom deserves because I would have been able to sit down and tell her. How right she was when she used to tell me, you'll understand when you have kids. And I never got to tell her that. I didn't even get to have my mom through my pregnancy. And I'll get into it a little bit later, but I miscarried before I had my daughter. I didn't get to have my mom there to support me through that. I'm sorry. Like I said, it's hard for me to talk about, but it needs to be talked about. But it did. I resented people so much who got to have their moms in their life, and I didn't. Especially for, you know, the people who I've seen who may have had, like, more strained relationships with their mother and without me even knowing their story, I was just resentful because it's like, oh, wow, you don't even appreciate having your mom. and My mom was my best friend. Let me just take a sip of water. But so I had a lot of resentment going on, a lot of internalized anger. And I obviously noticed a shift in my mental health, which made me resent in a way, my mother for leaving me uh, because I felt like that made it worse, obviously. Um, And then it also kind of gave me a bit of it it kind of kicked off my issues with my anxiety and in a way gave me I guess a mild case of like PTSD because then I just started ever since I've had this crippling constant concern of my own death and health because again you know my mother my mother died at 42 and there was no reason to suspect for that to happen um so it gives me constant worry about when my day comes um and also the incessant and constant fear of Okay, well, who's going to die next? Who do I love that's going to die next? Because you ripped my mom away from me. So who who else do I love or is, is the world going to take? But I try to remind myself when I have those thoughts is that ultimately death is inevitable and I cannot live my life waiting for death to happen. But... Even though, obviously, y'all saw I got very emotional. I mean, she's my mama. Um, I am in a better place now, but that's just a pain that's never going to go away, you know? I do. I miss my mom very, very much. And uh, this time of year, it's definitely hard. Uh, her birthday was in October, and my mom was the reason that any holiday in our house was fucking dope. So, honoring those traditions, you know, is my way to stay close to her. But um, it is also very hard just not having her here to participate in them. But, as I mentioned before, I miscarried. Um, So, we'll get into that story now. Okay, so like i said before um i did have a miscarriage before i got pregnant with my daughter um, so 2013 my mom passed i i did get married that december of that year um and by february the following year my husband and i decided to start trying and um after about six months i found out i was pregnant um i would say about a week and a half to two weeks after I found out I was pregnant. Um I started light and mild bleeding. Um I had talked to my doctor. And so for those of you who don't know, usually once you find out you're pregnant you still don't have your first doctor's appointment until closer to like honestly almost the end of your first trimester. You're <clears throat> you're about like 18 weeks. For most people before you get your first appointment, at least that was the case for me, aside from like uh, an appointment for like your general health, but like ultrasounds and things like that. They usually don't do that really. um But I started out with some light bleeding and I spoke with my doctor, gone to the hospital even a few times, and they were just like, the first few times it was like, oh, you know, light bleeding is is normal. It's nothing to be concerned about. Some some women in the beginning will bleed as much as a full period. So I tried to just brush it off, but it wasn't. It just wouldn't stop. It wasn't stopping. It wasn't lightening up. And eventually, um, last time I went to the doctor before they confirmed, they told me they were like, you know, you're probably having a miscarriage, um, but we won't know. Yeah. And they, um, I don't know. They just kind of sent me home. I don't. I don't really. Some of that stuff is kind of blurry. I guess just not wanting to have um, believed it at the time. But anyways, um, so one day I went to work, I went to the bathroom and when I'd wiped, there was stuff other than blood in the tissue. And that's when I knew and that's when I had accepted it. It was like, I'm, I'm probably having a miscarriage. So I left work, me and my husband went to the doctor and they confirmed. And um, I will say that particular doctor was very great. Um, He was just very honest with me, but just let me know like, hey, it's not your fault these things happen yeah because i was taking care of myself i was doing everything right if anything i was more serious the first time like i wasn't i wouldn't even look at caffeine i would damn near overcook eggs and i wasn't eating underdone meat like i was very stringent you know i was taking care of myself drinking water you know trying to you know i started walking trying to get a little exercise in but anyways um not to reassured me that you know, it's very common. Um one in four women actually miscarry. So oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. I got such bad sniffles. But um it was so hard because I felt very alone and and I had, you know, I went public and told people I was pregnant, like on social media and everything. That's why a lot of people stick to the three month rule because usually, after that, most miscarriages happen within the first three months so that's why a lot of people will wait until after so that way they're kind of out of like the the danger zone and it still it still happens past that but not as often not as often at all so I was embarrassed because I didn't end up making, like, a, another public post saying, hey, I had a miscarriage. I just stopped posting about pregnancy. I had posted, like, a couple of vague things. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, having to go and tell my friends and family, you know, people closest to me, like, hey, no, I'm not pregnant anymore. And then I had felt like I let my husband down. I also really felt like my little brother in particular that I let him down. Um because again, like we had just went through losing our mom And when I had told him, he had just got really quiet That, and that one was really hard um, But I did, I felt like I let my family down Of course they all were more concerned about me And how I was feeling And they didn't put it on me that it happened They were just like, you know, like Everything's going to be okay, it's alright They were super supportive But I did, I felt like a failure I felt like I had failed, my body had failed me, and that I had failed my husband and my family. Um, But once I started sharing my story with more people, like, I remember when I finally went back to work, because I had taken some time off. And I went back to work, all the women I worked with who had kids were like, oh, I've had a miscarriage the majority of the women in my life who all of them who had kids, even some who didn't have kids. It said like, yeah, I've, I've had a miscarriage. I'm just like, okay, y'all say one in four. I feel like this number might be bigger. Um, and it definitely made me feel less alone, which is what kind of inspired me to be more vocal. So when I had finally found out I was pregnant with Haley, um, my rainbow baby, and that's what children born after, uh, miscarriage, or infant loss are usually called. As you know, rainbow after the storm. Um, but yeah, once I had gotten pregnant with my daughter, when I had announced that pregnancy was when I had like made the official announcement of like, for those of you who don't know, a year prior, I had a miscarriage. And I was very vocal about that because it's not talked about enough. And that's such a traumatic experience. And so I I do. I'm very vocal about it. I'm not afraid to talk about it. It was a hard time in my life. Um, my miscarriage ruined my pregnancy. Uh, because I didn't want to get too attached to the idea of having a baby in case it happened again. Uh, I just didn't I didn't I was not truly excited about motherhood until probably around the time where like I felt her moving for the first time. That's when it was like, oh, this is real, real. Like this is happening. Like, oh my God, I'm gonna be a mom. And that's when it kind of really set in for me. But leading up to that, it was just like, hmm, I'm just gonna be fat for a little bit. But then I had my baby and, um, during my maternity leave, it was hard adjusting as a new mom, but you know, I mean, I had like mild baby blues type thing, but I'd say about six months in is when my postpartum depression hit really bad, really bad, like a Mack truck. I had such feelings of inadequacy as a parent. Um, There were many nights, many, many, many nights, probably from lack of sleep. But nonetheless, that I just wanted to give her back. Just being raw and real, I wanted to give her back. I was like, "Mm -mm, this isn't going to work. Like, I can't do this. I can't be a mom. I'm not going to be a good mom. I can't do this. Like, I need to give her back. So that they can give her and it was never that i didn't want her i felt like she deserved better than me like i never and, and most and all mothers with postpartum depression they love their children this is not you're a bad mom and you hate your kids it's not that i i think it's fair for me to say and i mean if and if i'm i'm one person and the, again these are my experiences but i think a lot of mothers who have been through this can agree with me that um, you do. You just feel like your child deserves better than you. You feel like you are worthless and you aren't good enough for them. I did. I wanted to give her back to the hospital. I was like, I need to give her back. I need to give her back so they can give her to a good family with like a good mommy because I'm not going to be a good mommy. Um, and then that turned into just a constant desire to leave my family in general. Like, I, I then started to question my abilities to be a mother and a wife. And I was like, nope, my husband and daughter deserve better. I should leave. I just pack up my stuff in the middle of the night and disappear. I'm too much of a burden. I'm too much to deal with. I'm too much to handle. All of this going on is, is too much. They deserve better than to have to deal with me and my incessant nonsense. I was very wrong. <laughs> um, and then I, I, again, just another situation where I blamed my mother's death um, for my inability to parent. Because again, I didn't have her for that experience. So I blamed me not having a mom. Like, how am I going to be a good mom? I don't have my mom here to show me how to be a mom. Like, I'm not going to be a good mother. And it's funny now because now Anyone who has kids that I know, I always tell them who want to have kids, are pregnant or whatever. I'm just like, look, parenting is 90% winging it. What preparation you think you have is probably invalid and obsolete because every kid is different. But I was so pressed at the time saying, like, I don't have my mom here to teach me how to be a mom. So I'm never going to be able to be a good mother. And it got worse. Um, I eventually did. Uh, Start having suicidal thoughts because I guess the idea of leaving, I couldn't live with the guilt of abandoning my family. So it just got to a point where, again, my will to live was non-existent. And for people who say like, oh, suicide's so selfish, you're only thinking about yourself, that's, at least in my case, that's not true. When I've gone through moments of being suicidal, it was never solely about me. It was never solely about, I can't handle this. I can't deal with this. If anything, especially during my postpartum depression time, I felt like it was more of I was doing it for them. They deserved better than a wife and a mom who wasn't mentally stable. They deserve better than somebody who wasn't good at being a mom, who wasn't good at being a wife. That's what I would tell myself. Like, they deserved someone who was going to be good at being a wife and a mother. I just felt like they deserved better than me. So, no, it's not selfish. And people who say that are dicks. Um, And I avoided seeking help because there's just this whole stigma of, oh, postpartum depression means you hate your baby and you're going to kill them. And my biggest fear was like, oh, I'm going to tell them I have postpartum depression and they're going to think I'm a bad mom and they're going to take my daughter away from me. As much as I talked about, again, I wanted to give her away. I wanted to up and leave because she deserved better. It was like, but no, you're not going to take her from me. You're not going to take her. So, and I didn't want people to think that like, I wanted to hurt her because they didn't go you know, wrong. And there are, there are certain cases of postpartum depression where you may have violent feelings towards your child. Seek help. You're not a bad mom. These things happen. You should not act upon them, but it gets stressful. And that may be an unpopular opinion for some people. But this is why it's important to talk about postpartum depression and make it a comfortable environment for other mothers to have these conversations so that they can get help before it can manifest that way, because it can happen to anyone. It is truly, it can it can turn into a form of psychosis where you lose all sense of reality. Um, but eventually one day I just had a full on breakdown, completely lost it. And because my husband knew none of this, he thought I was just your typical, overly tired new mother. And he was helpful. He was, He's a great dad. And he was great when she was a baby. And he was very active, you know, and he took care of her and did his part. You know, he changed diapers. He made bottles. He gave baths. He played with her. They did tummy time. He put her down for naps. It's not like I was doing it alone. It's not like I didn't have my husband doing his full part as a father. Because I did. But I'm also just very good at concealing these things. I've Again, I've dealt with mental health issues my entire life for the most part. So seeming okay to everybody else isn't hard. Especially when you're someone like me who doesn't want to talk about your issues. So... It's it's a fairly easy task to pretend like everything's okay. And it also feels good to ignore everything that's going on because you have to pretend to be okay um, and not wanting to face your problems head on. But one day I had just completely lost it between a very long, hard, arduous day at work and then coming home and having to parent and finally got my daughter to sleep. And I came out and sat on the couch and just lost it and started crying. And I told my husband, I was like, I don't want to be alive anymore. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a mom. I don't want to be a wife. I don't want to be a person. I don't want to be here. I don't want to live and it just sparked something in him where he kind of he was still loving and caring and supportive but he did have a moment of like a little bit of tough love and he's like you don't get to do that we need you if you don't believe that we need you I'm letting you know we need you You don't get to tell us that our life is going to be better without you. And it's just what kind of pushed me to start getting the help that I needed. And he was like, look, whatever you need, I'm here. We need to get you therapy. You need, you know, more breaks from, you know, parenting. You know, if you need me to, you know take over more for now so that you can kind of you know take a back seat and and focus on you like he was there to do whatever i needed and my husband's a fucking rock star he's the most incredible man in the world to me he's an amazing husband he is an amazing dad and i can definitely say he made getting through that a lot easier Um, I still didn't go And get therapy therapy And I had insurance at the time Um, I was still too scared to do that And I was straight up with him I was like I don't see myself going to therapy I don't see I'm still too scared Like that part of it I still couldn't shake But um, The crisis text line I told you guys about At the beginning of this episode um, I did use that And it was a great resource when you don't have the time to, or the energy or the desire to talk to someone on the phone, it was nice to have someone to talk to. And they got me through a lot of rough times of just, and for me, it was really just about verbalizing my feelings instead of holding them in. And then I did also seek help through some facebook groups that i found for mothers with postpartum depression where there were some um, medical professionals who you know provided advice and just a free resource you know just provided you know like coping mechanisms and this sense of community of so many other moms who were going through the same thing and it made me feel so much more normal it was like okay so i'm not like some wacky, insane cuckoo bird for wanting to up and leave my family. Like, y'all be feeling like this, you know, eight times a week too? All right, cool. Glad I'm not alone in that. And then just the reassurance from one another. Cause I, and I think we can all say this uh, for whatever reason, it's so much easier to provide. The support to others, like if I was to hear another mom say the exact same things that I said when I had PPD, I'd be like, no, like, are you kidding me? You're an amazing mom. Your family totally needs you. You're a wonderful person. You're a good mom. Everything's going to be okay. You know, super supportive, but then can't take heed to my own bullshit. <laughs> like, I can't take heed to the own shit that I am literally telling other people. Like, how dare you think less of yourself, but I'm allowed to think that I'm trash. Like, and it helped. It helped but those things helped a lot and I got through, I got through. Um, it still helped spearhead my anxiety more than anything. Um, so now depression, not really something I deal with too much, but anxiety has now become a very large part of my life, unfortunately. And that is, uh, kind of where we're at as far as the status of my mental health. So yeah, me and anxiety are super tight friends now. Uh, Depression makes her lovely appearance, like, you know, once to twice a year. Uh, But anxiety is like, little buddy hanging on my back. Um, And anxiety is different for everyone. Um, like I said, back in high school is where I got my diagnosis for just like general anxiety disorder. Um, and everyone's saying that anxiety will manifest and affect them in a different way. Um, a lot of people think anxiety is solely just like anxiety attacks. Mm, no. Not always. Not even most of the time. Honestly, not that often. I'm sure if I really thought about it over the past decade... You probably count the amount of anxiety, like full anxiety attacks that I've had on my fingers, and maybe need a toe or two. But um, yeah, it manifests itself. It doesn't always have to be the most extreme thing. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand with mental illness is that it does not always manifest in these massively extreme ways. Like depression isn't always just sitting around. Oh, despair and doom have become me. And, like, it's not always the cliche bullshit you see on TV. Depression and the anxiety can be getting up and going to work every day and coming home and spending time with your child and your husband and making dinner and doing chores and living a completely normal life like everybody else and just experiencing and going through life differently in your own head. Um, But some of the things that I deal with personally... Just constant irrational worries and fears, and that's one of the things, as far as I have seen through through resources online, um, the difference between like having an anxiety and disorder and then just like normal everyday anxiety that people may have. Well, not everyday. Like being anxious is a normal feeling to have, because for the average person. They're usually anxious as a response to something like a first date, a job interview, you know, a new activity or endeavor, buying a home, things like that. Like those are normal life situations that can make you anxious. With anxiety issues, it's either vastly irrational or non-existent. Like, there are times where I can feel my chest tightening, my, like, full-on eight-mile palms sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy, for literally no reason at all. Literally out of nowhere. Nothing has happened. I am just sitting at work doing my job, typing the things, answering the phones, and then all of a sudden death and despair are in my heart. And I'm like, oh, for no reason. I will wake up feeling like a bear is sitting on my chest. just constant fear and worry like several times a day and it can just be or and again when I so that's like the whole over nothing but then like the irrational thing like for example I can get a slight critique at work of like oh hey when you did this it kind of messed up so like can you do it like a different way next time or like hey you know you're doing okay but we need you to push a little harder. I go into a full-fledged, oh, well, they're going to fire me. They think I suck at my job. They're going to fire me. They don't want me here. I'm useless. Not rational. Not bad at my job. I know I'm not. If anything, I'm damn good at my job. But a single critique will have me in a tizzy of, oh, I'm going to get fired. Like, they don't want me here. They absolutely want to get rid of me. They think I'm terrible. Or, <coughs> excuse me, if I text a friend and we're having a conversation and if they don't text me back within, like, a fair time frame, um, I will. Li- my brain will literally tell me they hate you. I will reread what I sent them to see. Oh, did I say or do something offensive? Did I say or do something to bother them? And now they don't want to talk to me. Instead of like being a normal person, like, hey, maybe they're busy. Like you're at work right now. You don't always respond right away. You may not respond for 20 or 30 minutes because you're doing something. But it's like, but I know they didn't hurt my feelings and I don't hate them. I'm just busy. But for whatever reason in my brain, other people aren't busy. They just hate me. It's because they hate me. And then they text me back and it's like, oh, look, they don't hate me. Or maybe they do and they're just pretending they don't. Like, it's it's that kind of twisted fucking bullshit. Um, and then with my family, if they don't reply in a decent time or if I just haven't heard from them in a bit, like, it, it could be like a couple of days before I've like heard from my dad or something Be like, oh, they're dead. If I call my husband and he doesn't, oh, my husband is the worst. <laughs> Him and my brother, if I call them and they do not answer, unless I know my brother is at work, if they don't answer, it's because they died. After my husband drops me off at work in the morning, if I don't get a text message or something from him by like nine o'clock, I automatically assume that he must have gotten in a car accident and died on the way to work. My brother doesn't reply. Um, it's because his job got robbed and he got murdered. See what I mean? It's a as fuck. It doesn't make any fucking sense. And saying it out loud, I know it sounds stupid, but when I am in that moment and I feel that way, you couldn't tell me otherwise. You couldn't tell me shit. It makes complete sense in that moment. And then, like I said, I'm just feelings of doom. I can literally wake up with just like a lump in, lump in my throat, chest tight, hands sweaty, like something bad's going to happen for no reason. And then I'll spend my entire day like, when's the bad news coming? Just literally waiting for it. Like what? Okay, what what bad thing is gonna happen? And, and it doesn't make sense. That's why I also don't I tell people I don't have a gut instinct. I don't know what a gut, a gut instinct is. Because again, when I wake up on those days feeling like death and doom and despair, everything in me is saying something terrible is going to happen. I literally can't tell the difference between a gut instinct and just my anxiety being stupid. It's not rational. Um, Extreme irritability. There are times where like, depending, like when my anxiety starts to peak. It can go in one of two facets. It can go, again, feelings of doom and panic, or irritability, where every little thing drives me insane and to a level of anger that doesn't make sense. Like I could get pissed off to the point of wanting to fight someone simply because they said something annoying like I remember one time I, I was legitimately not in the mood and I could hear my colleague on the phone cracking you know the corny jokes that you're cracking in the you know office industry and I was just I just want to punch him in the face Like he's so fucking annoying and it's like yes yeah, don't be wrong even when my anxiety is not bothering me he's fucking annoying it's not it's not normal to think about hitting people that's not a normal thing. Um, Inability to make decisions. Whew, that's a big one. I, it doesn't happen often. But when it does, if my anxiety takes me to the point that I can't make a choice, I mean I can't make a choice. Don't ask me where I want to eat. Don't ask me what I want to do. Don't ask me what's wrong. Don't ask me what I need. You could literally look at me and say, do you want a glass of water or a glass of battery acid? And I would look at you and tell you I couldn't decide. Like I just lose all of it. Again, it doesn't happen that often. But when it does, it is ridiculous. <laughs> it is, And I'm sorry if I chuckle and laugh. I don't think anxiety is funny. That's just how I cope with mine. In my day-to-day life, I have to make a joke out of it. I just have to pick on myself for being a weirdo, neurotic person. I don't think that of other people with anxiety, and it's a completely valid disorder to deal with, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and it can be debilitating. So when I make these jokes, I'm making them at my own expense, not at the expense of others. Um, perfectionism. I I say it a lot. Um, I don't like to do things I'm not good at. I know I'm bad at it don't I'm not doing it <laughs> a good example I suck at sleeping the floor don't know why I can sleep that bitch 2,000 times and there's still shit on the ground I don't do it I get somebody else in the house to do it that's just like the first example that came to mind but there's like there's literally games that I've avoided pl- playing things that I've avoided doing because I've either tried them once and I was terrible because for whatever reason, in my sick, twisted head, I expect to at least be average trying something for the first time. If I'm not at least average when I try something for the first time, unacceptable. If I am bad at it, mm-mm, mm-mm. I will not do it again. <laughs> Another one, um, muscle, muscle tension is one. And this was actually one I had noticed about myself Um i say in like the past two and a half years, I clench my jaw almost constantly. And if my jaw is not clenched, my tongue is full force pressed against the roof of my mouth. I developed the habit of chewing gum so that I'm not pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth. I will force myself to sit and stare like an idiot with my mouth hanging open. Because I constantly clench my jaw, you'd think I'd actually have a jawline doing it so much. Uh, no, face is still flabby, but yes, my my jaw's almost always constantly clenched. I even clench my jaw in my sleep. I don't grind my teeth, thankfully, but yeah, I, I have to actively remind myself relax your mouth, relax your jaw, take a deep breath because it, it is just constantly tense. Um, another one, my anxiety is really bad. I have this habit of going on a hunger strike. Um, it could be for a myriad of reasons. Either I am emotionally not capable of putting in the effort to make a meal for myself. Um, I don't have the emotional wherewithal to eat at all. I cannot decide what to eat. Or I'm literally punishing myself. Because my anxiety frustrates me. And like, there will be times where it's like, okay, I got in a panic over something. And now that it's over and said, and done, I look back on it's like, oh, why are you so stupid? Like, why did you get in a panic over that? That is dumb. And I will literally just not eat. And it's not like I'm telling myself in my head, oh, you don't deserve to eat. In my head, I'm telling myself like, oh, I'm not really that hungry when I know I need to eat. And I know I'm hungry, but I, for whatever reason, put myself through this hunger strike. Um, It usually takes my husband um, having to tell me to eat. And like he'll make me a plate, or make me a snack, or something, and bring me food and back. You you need to eat again. That one is not. It's not like an everyday thing, but it definitely happens a few times a month. And it's not good. You should not punish your body like that. That's and that's why I had put the content warning of like disordered eating habits because I don't necessarily have an eating disorder but I do participate in some of the practices of disordered eating that are just very, I shouldn't be doing it to myself. Like I literally know it's stupid and I shouldn't be doing it. And lo and behold, I do it. Um, But I think the thing that's hardest for me about my anxiety is it, a lot of anxiety requires this level of irrational thinking. And outside of my anxiety, I am a rational person. I am someone who believes in ration and logic and facts. But when my anxiety takes over, all that goes out the window. It's like, okay, logically speaking, you only have a 2% chance of choking on an apple. I'm making all this up, these numbers aren't real. But um it'd be like, oh, you only have a two percent chance of choking on an apple. In my normal everyday life, I will I will still eat an apple, actually saying that I may eat one later. But in anxiety world, it's like, but there's still a chance. And you know what? I'm just not a lucky person. I'm probably gonna fall in that one to two percent that chokes on an apple like a dumbass. It's very hard and because, again, and that's why I say I get irritable and frustrated with myself sometimes because, like, after it's all said and done, it's like once I'm finally able to calm myself down and kind of pull myself out of it, I look back on what I said and what I was thinking and what I was feeling and I'm just like, like, this literally doesn't make sense. And you know it doesn't make sense. Why did you even believe that that was a thing? Why did you even listen to that nonsense? it's frustrating. Um, and also my anxiety has caused me to do a few impulsive things. Like I usually, for me, usually anxiety ends by me shutting myself down. Like I will isolate myself for a little bit, um, or a lot of it depends on how much time I need. Um, so that I don't make impulsive decisions. Um, but I also have two piercings and an undercut because of impulsive decisions. I got my septum, my nipples, and my undercut solely out of impulse. Now, impulse for me, when it comes to the the modifications I have done to my body, I took a lot of time deciding what I wanted, researching what I'm getting done as far as like my tattoos and my piercings. These, no. One, I never saw myself getting any kind of a nose piercing, and now I have two. I don't really blame my nostril on impulse, like, having the septum kind of broke my own mental standard against getting one because i thought they looked great on other people i didn't think they would look good on me um but having my septum has just broke me off of that idea of like oh i would never have a nose piercing so i ended up subsequently getting my nostril done um but before that, i never saw myself getting a septum piercing my sister-in-law had one and i think hers has always looked cute on her but i was just like i don't see me having that and that's not a me thing like i wanted more piercings but i never knew what i wanted um and then one day out of impulse i guess just to feel something um i was like i'm gonna go get my septum done and got it done i want to say 48 hours later because i wanted to go to the piercing shop on a friday and not a a work day like i wanted to go and i got off of work and i could have the weekend because i knew i'd have to flip it up in my nostril at that specific specific job so i wanted to give it a little bit of time um and then my nipples the same thing. I think I I got that done, the the following Friday of the decision. I decided that I was just gonna go and get needles jammed through my titties. And uh, the undercut took a little longer, because I had to set an appointment. But this is coming from someone who has only taken scissors to a hair one other time, to literally hardly trim off dead ends I literally remember my mom at one point when I was a teenager was like you know maybe we should give you like a nice cute little short haircut and I I cried I cried so hard I was just like no no I will run away not that that's gonna make my hair grow back but I was I was like if my mom makes me cut my hair I am running away I will not live in this house and then I went and shaved a good portion of my hair off impulsively the only reason i didn't do it myself is because i'm still a perfectionist and i'm also still a virgo so um i wasn't gonna do a subpar shitty job myself i was gonna pay somebody to do that shit Thankfully, i don't regret them though and i the the undercut I, i regret not getting the one i actually wanted i got the back of my head shaved um i initially wanted to get the side done but i was too much of a pussy and now I want my side done, so I'm growing it out, and growing the back of my head out, which is taking forever. So yeah, my only regret is that I did not just go ahead and do the side shave that I wanted. But give me like six more months. Once the back of my hair is long enough to throw up in a ponytail, saving a shot of my head off. But yeah, so, and look, some people make more reckless decisions. Thankfully, um, I'm just a pussy. And there are a lot of things I'm scared to do. <laughs> and so for me, getting wild and crazy is uh, jamming some needles through me or taking some clippers to my head. But we all have, we all have our ways that our mental illness manifests itself. And just like we all have our ways to cope. So I'm going to go over a few things that I do that helped me get through my day-to-day life as the neurotic mess that I am. Now that we have discussed um, how my wild mind works, these are some of the things that I just like to do that kind of help me be my best self and be my most coherent self. Um, Remember, I am not a mental health professional these are just suggestions of what I do. And I'm not even necessarily suggesting. These are just things I do in my day-to-day life if anyone has been interested in trying them and wanted to know someone else's experience. But always consult your doctor. Um, you got the cliches. Meditation. I will say for me, I can't just sit and meditate whenever, wherever, however. Uh, I actually prefer guided meditations. Um. Because it takes the guesswork out of meditating. (laughs) Because like, I don't know, something about just having that very clear instruction makes it easier. So like I will pop some headphones in, I will go in my room and I will either sit down on the floor on my yoga mat or I'll sit in the center of my bed um, and just find a guided meditation that'll tell you like, okay, you know, breathe in, breathe out. Think of this soften these muscles, straighten your back. And guided meditations are great. So if you've tried meditating and, and you kind of feel kind of lost as to what to do with, you know, your mind and your body, try a guided meditation. There's like easy 10 minute ones that you can find on YouTube. Like I implore you. They are really, really good. Yoga. I've always enjoyed yoga since I was a kid. I'm not really sure what initially drew me to it, but there's just something good about feeling them bones crack. Cause I know for me, they do. Um, but just getting those really nice, deep stretches, really pushing the boundary of your muscles and flexibility. And like, people think yoga is easy. It takes a level of strength and dexterity. And then like, you know, having to, it focusing on your breath and it is really just a full body experience, like mind, body, and soul. Um, cooking. I love to cook. So that brings me peace. And and when I do it, as far as like helping me cope with my anxiety, it's usually like a tried and true recipe that I can make with really without having to really think about it. Or I pick like something that I can make like soup or something that's very kind of, I can throw whatever in there and it's going to be good. So... That um, showers, a good hot shower, sometimes a good hot shower, and just sitting in there being overdramatic and letting the water run all over your hair and face and, and just sitting in there like they do in the TV shows and in the movies. <laughs> um, it can be very restorative. And something about hot water. Naps. Naps are also a very good one for me when I get irritable. I can literally sleep it off. I will take me a good 30 minutes to an hour nap, wake up like nothing happened. Like I'll wake up and be getting my bearings about myself for like 10 to 15 minutes. And then I realize, oh shit, I was pissed as fuck before I went to sleep. Hmm. Well, that's over. So naps, if you can. A good nap. Mm. And then like, you know, classic, uh, you know, typical cliche self-care. Things like the other day, I was just kind of in a mood, and uh, I painted my nails. I don't do that that often anymore, um because you know, no matter how good your nail polish is, it eventually chips. Like I did this, mm, like two or three days ago, three, three or four days ago, maybe. It's not really chipping that bad though. Like I'm, I'm still good for this week. I think I don't think I'll need to redo them, but um that or you know skincare getting a little bit more in-depth with my skincare because I got a pretty good skincare routine but you know I'll do you know fancy face masks something like that like look go to Walmart get you a two dollar sheet mask and and treat yourself (laughs) um yeah like I said the other day I played some like just like some nice meditative music like some it was like, what, like rocks and the sound bowl and creek. <laughs> There's plenty out, so you can find those, like, calming sounds. And I just played that in the background and drank a cup of tea. I like hot tea, very soothing, especially this time of year. So tea or cocoa, it was nighttime, so I didn't want to do anything with um caffeine. I don't really have an issue falling asleep if I've had caffeine, but um staying asleep it doesn't pack me there um or like sometimes i'll just get really extensive with like a hair care routine and like i'll do like an extra special mask or buy like a little packet of some kind of a treatment serum shit that you know doing it one time probably isn't going to do anything but it makes you feel good (laughs) and so i'll do something like that um but then i also have like actual like active daily mechanisms that i use not just like stuff like that um I think one of the biggest things that has helped me through my struggles with mental illness, as far as, like, personal accountability, because I think that's another problem that we have, is there are people who have mental illness, which is understandable, but they use it as an excuse to treat people poorly or be a shitty person. And mm -mm, that's not okay. That's not going to work. So I don't remember who I heard this from, so Don't, don't hold me to it. But someone had once said that your mental illness explains your behavior, but it does not excuse your behavior. So if I am having a moment, an episode, and I'm lashing out at my husband, I will apologize and be like, you know, I'm sorry. Like, obviously, you know, I was having an episode and that explains why I did it. But it doesn't make it okay that I did it. It doesn't excuse that I did it. I'm still an adult who needs to be accountable for her own actions. Um, something that I do with, you know, the help of my husband is just being very vocal about my needs. So when I am having an episode, <clears throat> you know, your loved ones try to help you out, but you kind of have to help them help you. So be vocal about what you need. Like, one, there's no wrong in having a support system. Make that clear. Don't let anyone make you think, oh, well, you're weak because you're requiring other people to help you with your problems. No, I'm not requiring it as far as, like, everyone should have to. But, I mean, if you're a part of my life and you love and care for me, I would hope that you would be supportive of me as I would for you. That should be an obligation. Being supportive should be an obligation for people to be a part of your life. I'm not asking you to fix me and fix my problems, but, like, be supportive. Anyway, um, so I'm very vocal and specific about my needs because like sometimes I want cuddles, I want forehead kisses. I want you to rub my butt and just tell me that I'm pretty. And then other days, the thought of a human touching me makes me wanna cut off your fingers. Um, Sometimes I want advice and sometimes I just wanna be able to shout out and say what I wanna say. I just need you support and listen. So I'm always vocal with my husband about my needs for that. I'll be like, okay, you know, I need space. Now can you keep the kid entertained for like next 15, 20, 30 minutes? Let me take a shower. Let me just lay down and chill in my room. Stuff like that. Um, let's see. Another thing. I like list. I like list. So for me if I'm going through something and like, I'm just having a hard day, sometimes making a list of like the tasks that I need to complete that day. So it's mainly for the days where I feel like, Oh, so little time, so much to do. Okay. Let's make a list. Whether that's a list in my head or I will type it out on my phone or write it out on a piece of paper. It's like, okay, well, here's the thing you have to do. And sometimes being able to look at that list just helps make it easier to get through. Because then you can see like, maybe it's not as much as you thought, not as bad as you thought, not as overwhelming as you thought it was going to be. Another great thing about list is like, being able to list like the pros and cons of like a situation that you are in where you have to make a decision and that's overwhelming. You know, being able to list out the pros and cons of, well, if I do this, what's good about that? What's bad about that? What could I deal with by making that decision? So it can help with decision making um, or just a list prioritizing things like when I have a lot on my plate and I'm super overwhelmed, I can, and whether you list it or not, just prioritizing in general, um, like on Sundays, uh, getting ready for the work week, giving the kid a bath, got to cook dinner, got to prep, you know, meal prep my food for the week. And maybe there's a couple of chores in there that could wait till tomorrow. Like, okay, I need to clean my makeup sponges. If I know I have too much to do and it's like, oh, I'm not going to have time to clean my makeup sponges. Okay. But I have brushes that I can use to achieve the same effect. And I don't necessarily need the sponges tomorrow. And I can wash them tomorrow when I get home. It can be something like that. Or like, you know, prioritizing your laundry. It's like, okay, you know, I have enough clean towels for the next two days. So I don't have to worry about washing my towels right now. I can go ahead and wash my work clothes. So just prioritizing. Look, sometimes I am a firm believer in leaving some things for tomorrow's, Jessica, and not today. <laughs> or just later, you know? So like being able to just prioritize can make getting through a day much, much easier. Just decide, okay, what immediately needs to be done? What can wait? And that can make things A lot less overwhelming as far as like getting through just a normal day. Um, Mantras. I I do have a mantra for myself of simply when my anxiety is really bad, I just stop, breathe, and tell myself, you're okay. Everything's going to be fine. You're okay. Everything's going to be fine. And I will just take a deep breath in, say you're okay, and then everything's going to be fine you're okay. Everything's going to be fine. And I will keep doing that until I calm down. Um, Or just talking out loud to myself. Don't let people convince you talking to yourself is always crazy. Sometimes I have to talk things out and say them out loud and hear them audibly to be able to rationalize. Like, Oh my god my husband hasn't answered my last three calls like what if something happened to him like he normally answers the phone when i call and it's like okay 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 well last time you talked to him you were on your lunch break and everything was fine he was at work and he was about to be going on his lunch break so you know that oh maybe he's on his lunch break and he fell asleep in the work truck because that happens um, maybe his boss had to stop by the job spikes, job site. So he's not trying to answer the phone right now. Maybe he is lifting up a toilet up a flight of stairs and can't really stop to answer the phone. Just relax. So yeah, just like talking it out to rationalize. Um, grounding. I know a lot of people have heard that there are different grounding techniques, but I think one of the most popular ones that people hear is the, uh, five, four, three, two, one method. So it is just sitting still, and then you think of five things you can see. Look around in the room or the area that you're in and just name five things you see. So, for example, for me, lamp, fan, computer, microphone, keyboard. Then four things you can touch and, like, pick things with, like, specific textures. So, like, the smoothness of the desk the roughness of the twine around my pen cup, the warmth coming from the computer tower, the roughness of the feet of this chair because it's so old, three things you can hear. Right now, I can hear my AC running. I think it's the heat. I can hear the TV in my bedroom and i can hear the motor and the computer two things you can smell right now i can't currently smell anything (laughs) nothing's really smell my house but like with that you could go out of your way to find a smell like grab a candle and you know if you wear perfume take a sniff of that and then one thing you can taste and you can just go with like oh well i just had lunch and i can still taste the garlic or pop a piece of gum in your mouth or a piece of candy or a mint and focus on that flavor And it is just a way, it's a structure to give your mind ease. Sometimes it works. And look, sometimes you'll go through some of these methods and they may not work. You may have to do numerous ones to relax yourself. And that's okay. Another one for me, um, cold water. Sticking my hands under the sink. And what I'll do is I will just turn it full cold and put my hands and my wrist under it. And all I'm focusing on is the cold because I personally, I don't like, I don't like touching overly cold things. Cold is a, uh, I just, I don't like touching it. Like physically my body, I'd rather be cold than hot. But like touching like something from the freezer. I can't tell you how many times I get people to get things out of the freezer for me. On a regular basis, I ask my husband to fill a cup of ice for me if I need it. Because I don't like touching it. So that is a way to distract my mind and just like center it and focus it on something like oh this isn't pleasant now i'm not saying like be a masochist and hurt yourself but like you could do warm hot whatever just to put all of your attention into that one thing uh games on my phone i have a app where i can color um i play games like candy crush and that way I can just pour all my focus into that, even if I just do it for five minutes. Again, just to, because that's the thing, at least for me with my anxiety, it's my mind running wild in irrationality. So it forces me to just put focus into something or simply just getting cozy for me, like putting on a nice comfy pair of pajamas. Um, I'm a big blanket person. I don't know if I mentioned this on here before. I feel like I have, but if not, I'm saying it again. Um, I have several blankets. I have my couch blanket in my house, super soft and fuzzy. They're all super, like, the super soft fuzzy ones. I have one for my house, one for in the car, one for my desk at work. And I used to have another one for my bedroom. But, yeah, I'm very into the soft fuzzy blankets. Sometimes just wrapping up in that and just focusing on how soft and comfy it is. Brings me peace. It really does calm me down. It's just very soothing. Um, another thing I do, my podcast. This, this here, this is a place for me to just, again, yell into the void and just say the things that I want to say without anyone being able to say anything back to me. Like sometimes it's just, I need that moment to like, let me have my word vomit. Let me just blah, and get it all out. And of course, therapy is always a good resource. Um, I obviously understand, especially in the United States, that access to therapy with or without healthcare, without health insurance, is hard. Um, It's not always easy, and and being able to go to therapy, unfortunately, is a privilege in this country. I feel it should be a right, but y'all know we ain't getting into that. Um, But there are ways to find resources. Again, the texting, the crisis line is a great one. It's just texting, again, aside from your standard text messaging rates, it's free. If you just need that non, that unbiased person to talk to. Um, You can look for um, resources for like sliding scale therapy where they will, you know, do the payments based on your income. Um, Obviously, if you have insurance, talk to your insurance about what options you have as far as uh, therapists and psychologists and whatever available in your network. Um, Look for things like group or community therapy. Like those are options. um, Support groups in your community. Um, I want to even say that you, don't quote me on this, but if I'm not mistaken, I've even heard people say that you can find like people who are like training to be therapist, learning to be therapist, they can offer sessions to you as well. Um, so that is something that you could look into. Um, then of course, if if you're religious and you find comfort in your faith, reach out to your church. And if you don't have a church that you go to, look in your community for the church of your religion, of your denomination, and see what they may have available as far as um, options and their they're free. They're usually free. So yeah, if you're someone who is religious, please seek out a church. Um, self-help books, pod, self-help podcasts. I'm not considered a self-help podcast. Again, this is my, my podcast is a therapy for me. <laughs> but um, yeah, self-help books and, and podcasts. Um, there are even apps, so many therapy apps. I know um one that's mentioned on a podcast that I listen to a lot is called Talkspace. And um, it has resources for different kinds of therapy, whether it's having, you know, the one-on-one like video chats, phone conversations, just being able to text your therapist. So there are resources for some form of therapy. Just you know, search. Again, I wish therapy was easily accessible to everyone because I think everyone, even people who are mentally healthy. I think everyone could benefit from therapy every single person who ever existed in the history of everdom can benefit from therapy um but unfortunately that's not the world we live in and hopefully one day it will be more accessible but please if you are struggling with mental health or suspect that you are get get help please please don't hesitate to get some kind of help one you deserve to get help you deserve it you are not weak one of the most courageous things you can do is admit I have mental health issues and I need help because that's not easy so you are not weak at all you are not broken and you are not alone so please keep going And please don't give up, it gets better. It gets better, I know that's so cliche, but it's true. And I promise you people, people love you, people care for you and people need you in this world. So please don't give up and keep going. Because if no one else will tell you, I will tell you I care about you and I'm happy that you exist. Wrapping up with our quote of the week. There is hope even when your brain tells you there isn't. Quote by John Green. And that is very true. Because that's all, that's what mental illness is. It's your brain lying to you. There is always hope and there is always light at the end of the tunnel. So please, again, seek help. I've listed resources. You deserve that help. You deserve to be mentally healthy and mentally well. So please get help. You are worth it. All right, y'all. That's it for me this week. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with your friends and your family. Follow me on Twitter and IG. I will have them linked in the description. And thanks for listening. And I will talk to you next time.